Hello, I'm Raymond. And I'm Zara, and we're from the Multifaith Chaplaincy at Bates College. The Multifaith Chaplaincy warmly and creatively nurtures the religious, spiritual, secular, and searching communities at Bates College to encourage students to live into fullness and build deeper connections. We value curiosity and create spaces for conversation, contemplation, and connection. We've named our podcast Buen Camino, or Good Journey in Spanish, because we'll be talking to people from the Bates community about their personal stories, the paths they've taken, and where they found meaning along the way. Our guest today is politics professor Leslie Hill. Leslie's research and teaching has focused on subjects in women, gender, and politics, women in the global political economy, and black women's studies. She retired from Bates in May 2019. Leslie sat down with multi-faith fellows Sarah Marotti and Mara Stolzenbach to discuss her rage for justice, distaste for the word diversity, and love of puppies. Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm Mara. And we're here today with Professor Leslie Hill. Hi, how are you doing today? I'm fine. I'm glad to be here. Thank yeah. you for having me. We're super excited. Yeah. I think we'll just start off with the question of uh, where were you born? And if you could just describe a little bit of the neighborhood where you grew up. I was born in Detroit, Michigan. I tell everybody at a time when it was it was fun to be in Detroit. The economy was thriving, and um, the social life that I had access to was just a lot of fun. Hung out with friends, uh, some from school, but mostly from uh, friends that my parents knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, was there any particular person that had an impact on you, or you look back upon and remember fondly? There were a lot of folks. My mother belonged to two social clubs, and my father had organized a group of his colleagues to raise money for bringing African students mm-hmm. to the U.S. for medical training. And so in through those networks, you know, lots of those people had kids. And so I found a friendships there and a social network there. The people who were influential, I would say on one hand there were folks in the neighborhood that would kind of be the other mothers to the kids in the neighborhood. Uh, if it's getting out, they tell you to go home and have dinner. Um, for my own f- family, and I, w- I use the term Lucy to mean fictive kin as well as blood relation, mm-hmm. my father had a, f- a very good friend that he had made friends with when he first came to Detroit. Uh, we called him Doc Tom. <laughs> and he was, he was like my other father. He was... Um, I felt like unconditional love from him. And so he was very influential. When I had a problem where I had a question, he's the person I would talk to. Because, of course, you never talk to your parents. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was good to have that. But I also had, I mean, my grandmother, she was a very smart woman, not highly educated, but uh, she could rule the roost. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so there were, there were adult women in my extended family. There were, there were people in my uh, parents' social network. And so that's, that they, a number of people had an influence on me. Growing up, I can't think that there was a single person. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think Dr. Tom probably rises to the top. Just to borrow a question from the podcast on being, do you have a particular religious or spiritual background in your childhood uh, that you could talk more about? I was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. and I went to Catholic schools through high school, from elementary to high school. The church was a very, very big influence because at that time, when you're in Catholic school, and this happened through my grade school, 
we went to mass every day. Mm-hmm. And so I was a, I was in mass six days a week. And in the high school, had religious studies courses. And probably my least fond memory is of that Bible class uh, taught by an elderly nun. So I learned, I thought I was learning a lot about religion. I thought I was learning a lot about the Catholic Church. And, you know, I learned a lot of doctrine. But what I didn't learn was the social context of the Roman Catholic Church through the centuries. So when I got to college, it was just fascinating to begin to realize, you know, the, 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 the context. And boy, when I first began uh, my sojourn through women gender studies, that was a whole nother dimension of understanding the kinds of decisions the church had made, the positions the church had taken. And then I guess the telling moment for me or the breaking point for me mm-hmm. was when I began to learn about more about world history. I began to understand the church's role in the slave trade and in Europe during World War II and not not doing its best to prevent the Holocaust. And so I really came to question the institution as distinct from the religion itself. Mm -hmm. Did that push you away from the religion, though, or just the institution? It did not push me away from spirituality, but it probably put me on a lifelong quest for a kind of spiritual path. It's, I find a spiritual dimension in the way people collaborate to work for justice. That to me has a spiritual dimension to it. And so while I, you know, I eschew the institution, it still is pretty problematic (laughs) in my opinion. The idea of believing in something bigger than oneself is important and I think useful. And so I'm still there in that sense. Okay. So do you believe that who you are today is similar to the person that you were in high school or in college? No, and I... um, (laughs) (laughs) Not at all. (laughs) Point blank. I was a good girl. (laughs) 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 Growing up, I didn't follow all the rules. I mean, you go to, you know, you go to Catholic school for 12 years and you learned to either be a good girl or a bad girl. I was a good girl, crossed eyes, T's and dotted eyes. But, you know, kind of seeking a spiritual meaning outside of the institution of the church meant that I needed to find a way to find a compass. Mm -hmm. And I think given the times that I grew up, I was I was a kid during the civil rights movement, you know, I was at, on Columbia's campus when during the student movement and that Vietnam War movement. So I grew up at a time of rebellion. So, you know, that kind of part of my framework became questioning what is. Why is it the way it is? And does it have to be that way, particularly when there are people who are on the bad receiving end of what's going on? And so I began to... I mean, for me, I, social justice became that kind of center for me. And learning to ask questions, learning to inquire and ask why are things the way they are and how is power operating, those are questions that I never ask. You know, when you're, the church doesn't teach you to ask questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so in that sense, that's a very big difference between the kind of person I was when I graduated high school and now. 
<laughs> do you feel like this sense of rebellion is still in you somewhere? Like when you are doing social justice work? I certainly hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, if rebellion on a, you know, there's a continuum. Anything from asking the question, you know, why are things this way? How did they get to be this way? Who benefits and who doesn't benefit? from the existing social arrangements to, you know, going to a protest. I went to a climate protest a couple of months ago. And so, you know, it's that range. And I'm sure the, the kind of, the way in which I've approached the study and teaching of what most people call political science has been in a kind of rebellious mode. Let's ask about the institutions that exist, the way states operate, the way that our institutions function. Again, the questions, who benefits from us? Who made these rules? Um, whose values? What values do they um, reproduce? That's a kind of rebellious approach. So where did you go to college? What was the campus climate? Was there any or any group of particular professors that really had an impact on you and your beliefs? Too bad the audience can't see me smiling. (laughs) (laughs) I went to Barnard, um, which is right across the street from Columbia. And it was uh, late 60s, early 1970s. By the Spring of my first year in college, uh, students were once again protesting. Sometimes uh, in those earlier years, the classes would be called off because of the intensity of the protests. I remember there was one person who's still in the media in New York. He came to Columbia's campus, and he just would informally teach courses in black history. He was Afro-Latino. And talk about just kind of the world opening up, my eyes opening up, it was quite amazing to hear this kind of alternative history that I had not been exposed to before. So he was important. The other thing was that black students, uh, among the demands um, that they had put forward was a call for the university to hire faculty of color, what we now call, we call faculty of color, but black faculty members. So Columbia hired, the politics department hired Charles Hamilton, who had written the book Black Power with Stokely Carmichael. Mm-hmm. And the Union Seminary, Union Theological Seminary, was just across 120th Street, hired James Cohn, a black liberation theologist. And I took classes from both of them. And it was just so exciting. It was the first time in my life in my formal schooling I had had a, a teacher of color. And both of these men were talking about things that were so compelling. It was wonderful to have both people who are able to kind of fill in and connect your own personal experience to the kind of history that they're talking about. And on the other hand, really just open up and give you a way to, to think about and question what's going on in the world. And so they were particularly influential. So what was your experience the year after college? <laughs> You've graduated. Mm-hmm. You're Leslie Hill. You go out into the world. <laughs> You're thriving. Let me tell you about a summer I had between my junior and senior year and then the summer after I graduated. I had an opportunity to go to Atlanta, Georgia, 
where a couple of professors who had been teaching at Morehouse College established what I could, I think, appropriately call a research think tank, the Institute of the Black World. And we had spent, we being a group of about 12 to 14 Mostly college students, the same situation I was, just kind of grad, rising seniors and, and just graduated, spent six weeks studying with some regarded as some outstanding black scholars. We studied with them, and then we spent time researching. Our specific research task was to, to map, to catalog the rebellions that had taken place in the United States we call them rebellions, the media calls them riots, um, from 1966 to 1969. We cataloged about 700 different incidences of rebellion, everything from really tiny protests in a small town, say, in a rural part of the state to uh, Watts in Newark and Detroit. So there I was, you know, involved in producing knowledge about the very kind of thing that I, that I had not been taught in, in colleges and universities. And so the question is, why? Why is that not part of what we learn about our country? It would seem useful for thinking, well, if, if, if the protests are this widespread, then the harms must be systematic, too. So I did that. And... In the course of it, decided, I like this thing of thinking. <laughs> and so I think I'll go on to graduate school with the expectation that, I, you know, even more things would kind of open up for me as I went through graduate study. How would you describe your experience in grad school? Uh, Mara and I are graduating this uh, yeah. upcoming May, so I feel like a lot of the people that I know are not tending to look towards like attending in grad school and are just going straight into the workforce. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you could talk a little bit about what grad school was like for you. Because I attended grad school in pieces, <laughs> I didn't go and then go straight through. I attended it in different stages of my life. The first part was pretty thrilling. I had access to professors who were trying to to, to critically think about what gets taught in politics courses and not actually reproduce some of the old customary, usual themes about who does politics and how they do it. So that part was thrilling. At another stage of my graduate study, I was in a very traditional program. I'll never forget. I took an international politics class, and one of the texts that we had to read was about mutually assured destruction. And after reading about, you know, gaming to think about how states actually enter war and pursue war and how they calculate the consequences of various kinds of strategies, I just said to the professor, I can't write about this. I can't think about this. It's just it the 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 negativity of the idea of mutually assured destruction was so overwhelming. For me, I guess, for at that point, as I think about it now, I was kind of acknowledging that one cannot separate the emotional piece from the intellectual piece. And so I, it took me a while. I, I went back and I, you know, I wrote a fine graduate-level paper for that course. But it made me realize that I was being reproduced as a, as a scholar of politics as it had been. Mm-hmm. And I was learning the canon, which is certainly appropriate. Become familiar with it. But there was little encouragement, and this is what I meant by traditional, there was little encouragement to 
then be creative, mm-hmm. to think critically about what's that canon leaving out? How is it telling a, a, a narrative of politics in a way that heightens the visibility and the values of one particular set of political actors as opposed to another. Mm-hmm. And um, that was very dissatisfying to me. In fact, when I proposed to do my dissertation on um, black women's political activism in Jamaica, in post-colonial Jamaica, I was told that if you do anything about black people, you will be thought of as having a chip on your shoulder. Mm-hmm. And it distanced me from the discipline quite a bit. Luckily, I found an institution that was really well suited to my interdisciplinary approach to politics. And so I had a marvelous opportunity to study in a, in a kind of what's called a Oxbridge style. I had a, an advisor mentor. I pulled together, designed, and, and called together a committee of brilliant women political scientists to be my, my PhD committee. And I went through a course of study with them and at the institution that just allowed for that kind of critical thinking that was so important to me. Do you feel as though you might have a calling or particular passion in life? If so, how did you find that passion? How did you navigate it? Mm-hmm. I don't really think of myself as having a calling, but a passion, yeah. I think that passion was cultivated in me. I remember very vividly in my living room, I don't remember how old I was, but my mother was preparing posters for a teachers' union protest. <laughs> so there's that. And the times I was living in, they're very different than what young people are living in now. It was a time for questioning. It was a time for challenging power. And so that was what part of what cultivated in me uh, the idea, well, you know, we can change things to make them better. And then the period of time I spent at the Institute of the Black World, we were, we were learning about how ideas about rebellion, we studied uh, the Haitian Rebellion, and we learned about subsequent kinds of resistance, resistance to enslavement, uh, resistance to, to racial and economic injustice in the U.S., and so that was cultivated. So by the time I decided to go to this um, interdisciplinary graduate institution, I had come upon the phrase of rage for justice. Mm. That's felt to me like the passion that was underlying my desire to study politics, but in a way that asked about the political ideas and experiences of people who had been conventionally excluded. Have you been able to align your professional work in studying and uh, teaching politics with your rage for justice? Uh, Did it ever ruffle any feathers or anything like that? I think the way kind of my approach has been to ask, well, how has the discipline studied this, let's say a particular issue that's come up. 2014, there were a lot of movement for Black Lives protests. And I went to one in New York and I began to think to myself, how is it that my paid students are going to be able to think about what's going on here? Clearly, this is politics, okay? Is there a way that I can step into a politics classroom and give students some tools to help them think through what's going on? So I decided to teach a course about race, justice, and policy. And 
I started it by asking, how does the discipline teach about these things? What tools do we get from the discipline to do that? And then, of course, the question is, what's missing? What gets left out? What What are the stories that don't get told? You know, and, and it, it the conversations can get very interesting, I think, because students are given some room to ask questions about things that happen, things they see happen, and what are the kind of choices that both political actors as well as, well, um, people on the ground, uh, political officials, public officials, have to make about that. Um, I know your and your research is also focused on gender and politics. Have there been any consistent uh, themes or questions in your research, or have they changed over time in the sort of questions you've been asking? Mm-hmm. One of the first courses I taught in this subfield was about gender in the state, and I taught I started teaching it at a time when different parts of the world outside of Europe and North America were going through changes. Democratization was big. But now with this kind of return to nationalist nationalism and some authoritarian ethos increasing in several many parts of the world, not just the global south, the questions come up again. How is it that states are defining um, women is it still only in terms of families? Is it in terms of their existence as autonomous, let's say, political actors? Are they defining, are they recognizing the collective action of, of women in different spaces? And so those questions become interesting. And I have to also add that something has come up in the last week, week and a half in the, the campaign, the presidential campaign on the Democratic side that looks unfortunately familiar. There is an iconic photograph that I used when I was teaching U.S. women in politics in the 2016 and 2018 class versions of that. And Hillary Clinton is in a pantsuit. She's a photograph from the waist up. She is looking slightly upward and to the side and captioned below, does she look presidential? And so the, you know, the underlying question is, can a woman be president? Mm -hmm. That was in 2016 in the United States. Well, darned if some of the language coming out of Joe Biden, it questions Elizabeth Warren's ability to be authoritative and even-handed. And it's as if a woman seeking high office in politics, her shrillness will come out. Um, It's as if there are qualities of being female that immediately disqualify women for the highest office in the land. You have to be level-headed and be able to make the decisions about whether or not to press that red button. (laughs) And so it seems to me that our culture's ideas about masculinity and femininity remain conventional, I'm not sure that's the right word, but don't allow for women's individuality, you know? Every woman candidate is going to be different from every other woman candidate, just like each male candidate is different from every other. And so that's, you know, that mm-hmm. that's kind of still there. I'll also say that um, what's enduring is the way that states still tend to operate as if it's okay to govern women's lives 
in ways that men's lives are not governed. Mm -hmm. Obviously, reproductive choice comes right to the top of it. But even when it comes to, you know, what what's the primary kind of work that women should be doing? Well, they're you know, they're quote unquote women's roles, women's primary purpose is reproduction. And so, you know, um, militaries remain very cautious about putting women in front lines, regardless of what an individual soldier's wishes might be. You know, and we still have battles about that, but what remains concerning is the ways in which governments, lawmakers, decision makers, policymakers continue to heighten the value of masculinity at the expense of the kinds of thinking and contributions that women make to society. So now looking more into your Bates career, um, what changes have you seen during your time here? Lots. (laughs) (laughs) First of all, the student body has grown tremendously. So Mm -hmm. there are more people on campus, the more students on campus. The faculty hasn't gotten particularly larger, so our classrooms are a little fuller. In some ways, the curriculum has opened up. I was part of groups of people who helped establish women's studies, what was called women's studies at the time, and what was also called African-American and American cultural studies at the time. So for the establishment of interdisciplinary programs, the curriculum has opened up. Since then, we have several more. And so that part has been very exciting. The governing structure of the college has changed. There are many more vice presidents here than there were when I first got there. <laughs> Let's see. I mean, the, okay, so the elephant in the room is how has, how does Bates live up to its narrative, its mm-hmm. historical narrative? Mm-hmm. It's a college founded by abolitionists. You know, it's been open mm-hmm. to everybody since the beginning. And how is it living that in the 21st century? It's an open question. It's still a challenge. For the college. A challenge not unlike what many, many, many other small liberal arts colleges are facing. And so, yeah, the questions are how is attention to the racial politics that we see going on in the world outside? How are we preparing our students to deal with a world that is increasingly multicultural? You know, a, a population that comes from all over the world. And that is becoming more visible to us. How do we think about the policies, the way institutions carry out their business? How do we think about the system as a whole and equip our students and ourselves to understand how power is distributed? That is, who makes decisions, how they make decisions, who benefits, and who doesn't, who's left out in that decision-making. It's, um, it's, it's an enduring challenge, I think, of any liberal arts education, but being able to pay attention to whether and how we're equipping our students to make sense of that world, to think critically about it, to find the resources that they need in order to make sense, to analyze, to make sense of it. That's, I think, um, an enduring challenge. So I've had the honor, the high honor of being in one of your classes and actually during my first year. And you pointed to the fact that you hate the word diversity, which is one of the challenges that many higher ed institutions are having is this idea of diversifying the curriculum or making students take courses about 
alternative histories or like histories of minorities. So I've been trying to get this answer out of her for years now. (laughs) And I think I finally cornered her. So Leslie, why is the word diversity a no-go for you? I guess the bottom line for me is that diversity is like near beer. As (laughs) 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 diversity is to racial justice as near beer is to ale. (laughs) (laughs) The word diversity seems to me to obscure more than it reveals. It's merely suggestive of a range of something. I mean, diversity means difference. When... In fact, the inequities are racial, they're economic, and they're based, in some cases, around sexuality. Why is it that the word diversity feels safe? The word race was really hard, has been until, I think, recent years, very, very hard for Americans to utter. And in fact, some people think that if you bring up race, that in itself is racist. I think then that Being able to find language that helps us understand what's the inequity that is being signaled when somebody uses the term diversity. Diversity helps us only think about difference. It doesn't help us think about the arrangements, the social arrangements, the the distribution of political power, the, the weight of various kinds of ideas that will help us understand how the system operates, understand the social relations that make some people appear to be more valuable Mm -hmm. than others. I've been thinking about this in the context of a lot of different things, but I remember um, some years ago I was talking about the fact that the college has clearly admitted larger numbers of, of U.S. students of color in its classes for about the last... 10 years. That's just a kind of throwaway number. But the question is, how then do students with life experiences, they're very different from what had been for a long time, the usual Bates student, in terms of class, in terms of of racial identity, and maybe even religious identification. What do these quote-unquote non-traditional students, what do they bring to the classroom? The institution, and I think all of our higher ed institutions do this, approach this as we'll bring them in and they should act like us. Mm-hmm. When I think the question should be, let's give them the opportunity and then let's find out how they can help us think about what we do. Let's say in a science classroom, bring in students and expect them to study individually by themselves and to achieve the appropriate levels of accomplishment has been a kind of conventional way of bringing students into science curriculum. I Believe me, I think the sciences are changing now, and they're recognizing the value of group work. When so many students from particularly marginalized communities come in with a lifelong practice of working with other people, of collective work, you know, see that as a strength of diversity, of Mm -hmm. difference, and Mm -hmm. bring it in. So, you know, finding ways to value that which is not the conventional or the customary and asking yourself, what is, how can they enrich the lives of what already exists? That to me is is a, a way to back away from diversity as simply difference and ask, 
what's the nature of people's lives, life experiences, and how can they, how can they make us better? So I feel like what you're talking about ties in a little bit to your teaching style and kind of your ability to kind of tie your teaching to activism. So how has this community been a part of your teaching and activism? Well, thank goodness for the Harvard Center. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They've actually helped me figure out how to connect some of the issues in a couple of my classes with with what's going on in the community. So in the U.S. gender sexuality and politics class, Sam Boss from the Harvard Center helped set up opportunities for Bates students to engage in conversation with young women and some men in the community about what politics meant to them. You know, and and the students got to hear how those young people thought about politics, thought about U.S. politics, or whether or not they thought about U.S. politics and only the politics of the countries they came from. The students got a chance to hear different ways that people think about politics. That was great. Um, the most exciting project for me was last year when I was teaching a course on race, gender, and pol- policy. After spending a two-thirds of the semester, you know, looking at texts about how government policy has shaped the structures in institutions that we live in and through, I had my students read proposals submitted from community organizations all over Maine. They were seeking grants from a racial justice grant program as established at Maine Initiatives. It's a small foundation. The purpose was to for students to see how people do racial justice work on the ground and to read and to hear in the voices of some of those applicants and some recipients how they're going about trying to undo inequity and trying to put forward the voices of marginalized folks in whatever sector they're working in. It's there that I found, well, it was an eye-opener because we often talk about racial justice in such broad terms that it's hard for people to imagine what it might be like to do it on an everyday basis. And I think if we can do anything on that, we can give people their own way to find opportunities, their own opportunities, things that work for them where they can move the dime on this one. I'm just wondering, in the course of your your upbringing and and um, your education and then your career, sort of poke at the broad question, what gives you meaning? A couple of things. One is, is collaboration. And most of the collaboration I find in doing this kind of social justice work, but not only social justice. Right now, I am working with uh, Margaret Creighton, who's in history, to create a platform for retired faculty to find things that we can work on collaboratively. Mm. (laughs) There's a group of us that's thinking about doing public writing. There's another group that's thinking about engaging in some sort of political action or climate action. About six different working groups. There's a kind of pleasure that I get in working to to help design this and figure out a way for retired faculty to connect with each other on things that have meaning for them. That's one. 
my ongoing work with Maine Initiatives. We just got through with a grant-making round where we selected another 10 organizations that are going to receive $25,000 to do the work yeah. that they do. It's fantastic. Yeah. So finding ways to, to be with others, to interact with them. And, you know, I do this socially on my own. It's just, you know, a group of us are have been getting together for dinner for about five years now. Off and on, it does, it's, it's about every six weeks to two months, you know. We, we go and hang out and catch up with each other. It's being able to, to sit with people, to talk with them, to hear their approaches, their ways of thinking about some of the things that interest me or vex me or, you know, <laughs> uh, trouble me or please me is, is kind of fun. Um, to do that. The other thing that gives my life meaning is puppies. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Oh. I volunteered to dog walk at the Greater Androscoggin Humane Society. They're going to let me at them <laughs> in about two weeks. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> oh. Oh, Leslie, thank you so much for yeah, being thank here you. with us today. Thanks for having your me. wisdom. <laughs> it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, thank you so yeah. much. That's yeah. kind of fun. Not as yeah. terrifying as I thought it yeah. would be. <laughs> Thank you to the Bates Digital Media Studio, the Multifaith Fellows, Multifaith Chaplain Brittany Longstorff, and Leslie Hill for sharing her story with us. Thanks for listening, and we hope you join us next time. 